When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready, with fifty men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next, after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, and Reh, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has become king without our Lord David's knowing it? Let me pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us strength to attend to your word, to listen with, with ears that will hear the spiritual truth that you speak to us. Lord, we come to this ancient text because we, we expect you to speak now to us, that your spirit would, would keep your word living and active in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that these details of an ancient kingdom, your kingdom, would show themselves to have have present purpose and relevance in our lives. Lord, that we would, in this, in this passage, see both our weakness and your, and your provision for us of grace and strength. Lord, we come to find out who will be king. And so we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. The king is too weak to ascend his throne. Who will be king? That's really the question that's before us here at the beginning of First Kings. And it might strike you as, as a little bit unusual. We've jumped from a New Testament, the New Testament story of Jesus here back to the Old Testament. And it, and it might strike you as unusual that, that First Kings doesn't begin with the reign of Solomon and the kings which follow him, but begins with the death of David. Why doesn't this, the, the end of David's reign, why doesn't this fall at the end of Second Samuel? Well, we want to see the connections between the stories, that it's a continuation of the story, but it's, it also raises for us that big question, who will be king? David is weak on his throne, but God has made a promise to David, a promise that his kingdom will last forever. And so can that promise be true, or is that promise false? It's uncertain if David's kingdom will last even beyond his own life. 
How could it last forever? And so the very first thing that we see when we, when we read this passage is the frail king. We're told in verse 1 that David is old and well advanced in years, and the, the writer describes how frail the king is. No matter how many garments they wrap him in, no matter how many blankets they pile on his bed, the king cannot keep himself warm. This isn't the kind of king that can lead an army. And remember, remember who David is. David is the shepherd who is willing to fight a lion, willing to fight a bear. David is the young man who would fight the giant warrior when no one else would. David is the one who ran into battle and said, the battle is the Lord's. He is the one of whom the crowds shouted, David has slain his tens of thousands. David is the great and glorious king of Israel, the chosen one of God. And yet what does he look like now? Frail and weak, unable even to keep himself warm. And so his attendants have a, have a plan. They'll find a, a bed warmer for him, a young woman to keep him warm. And so they don't just find anybody nearby. It appears as if they, they search the whole country, for they find her not in Jerusalem, but all the way up in Shunem, in the, in the north of the country. They hold a, a Miss Israel contest to find the most beautiful woman to come and keep the king warm. And as, as we read it, look, at, look again at verse 4. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. I think at best, this is a little bit creepy. At best. You have the old king, and so they do this extensive search to find the most beautiful virgin for him. And yet he's not even strong enough to do anything with her. It's creepy at best. There's, there's an, an admission of a lingering impropriety here, such that the, the writer has to tell us he didn't do anything with her. Now, certainly some in the court would have looked at that as weakness, weakness on this king's part. He can't keep himself warm in bed. He can't even take the prize when it's brought to him. How could he possibly lead us. This king is frail. And the beginning of 1 Kings forces us to consider our frailty, for, for David's resume is significant. He has accomplished great things, defeated God's enemies, and yet here at the end of his life, not even the blankets are enough to keep his frail body warm. See, there is a frailty to our human existence because of the sinfulness of humanity, because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of our own sinfulness. There's a frailty in our lives. And you and I feel it, don't we? You feel it every day as you pray for those that you love that are sick or in the hospital. You feel the brokenness of life. Some of you, nearing the end of life, you would, you would take the description that is given here of David, old and well advanced in years, and, and be able to apply it to yourself, and you think, is this what life has become? And whether you're old or young, wherever we stand on, on, life's, on, on life's storyline, you and I are forced to acknowledge our frailty. 
our weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of the 20th century, near the end of his ministry, when when describing this this passage, he, he warns us. He warns us not to place our hope or our identity or our purpose in the things that we have already accomplished. And yet that's a danger for us. And the, and the warning comes because there will come a day when you won't be able to do it anymore. When the things that they use to identify yourself, your position, your title, your power, your influence, they will have dissipated. David, the great king of Israel, is not seated on his throne because he can't get out of his bed. We have a frail king. And so the question is, who will be king? Will the promise of an everlasting kingdom hold? Because we see a fragile kingdom. In verse 5, we're introduced to, to the next character. King David is well known to us. Adonijah, his son, is not well known. But if we, if we were to flip back to, to 2 Samuel chapter 3, David has been anointed king over Israel by Samuel the prophet. And then we describe how in 2 Samuel 3, how David grew stronger and stronger. And then we have a list of the sons who were born to David before, he, before his kingdom was moved to Jerusalem, while he was still further south in Hebron. In 2 Samuel 3, we read that his firstborn was Amnon, the second, Kiliab, the third, Absalom, and the fourth, Adonijah. Now, we know two of those three that came before Adonijah. He is fourth in line fourth in terms of royal succession. But his older brother Amnon, the firstborn, is already dead, killed by Absalom, the thirdborn, because of Amnon's sin against his own family. Absalom then tried to grab hold of the throne for himself. He attempted a coup against his father David, and he was killed in the battle. So sons one and three are already dead, Kiliab, the secondborn, is never mentioned again, and so it seems likely that he's no longer on the scene, perhaps even having died in infancy. And so Adonijah, the, the fourth-born son, is the one who stands in line to inherit the throne. Except that God's plans don't only, always follow lines of succession. David was not the firstborn of his own brothers. He was the youngest. God is not choosing Adonijah to be the king. God has already made it clear. And it seems Adonijah knows that who the crown prince is. Because who is the one who doesn't get invited to the royal celebration? Which brother isn't there? Solomon, the one to whom the throne really belongs. Because God's plans don't follow man's plans. But Adonijah sees the weakness, the frailty of his father, and he decides, now is the time to assert my royal authority. He decides, look at verse 5, to put himself forward, and he says, I will be king. And it seems the people are willing to agree with him. He gets the chariots and horses ready to make this royal announcement. He gets 50 men to run out ahead of him. Now comes the announcement, there is a new king on the throne. All hail Adonijah. Long live the king. He shows his power by, by harnessing all of these people, by, 
uh, this public display of, of his greatness. He even, you see, look at, look at the allies that he's gotten for himself. Look at verse 7. All right, now, I admit, you, you have to stop, we have to stop because all of these names start to get mixed up together. So we have to stop and we have to, to go back and remember who each of these characters is. Adonijah is the one who has who's declared himself to be king, and, and so he gets Joab to join his side. Now, Joab was David's number one in command. He is the commander-in-chief of the armies of David, and, and Joab is ruthless. He has blood on his hands. He, he probably daily can't wash it off because he has killed so many people through 2 Samuel. And Adonijah has Joab on his side. He also gets Abiathar, the priest, the priest, the one at the center of, of the religious institution. And this is quite the coup. He has everything you would need, a public display of his power, the army at his side, the, the religious leaders standing with him. Surely he cannot fail in taking the throne because who is going to stop him? David? David? We know he's too weak to do anything. And, and worse, look at verse 6. We know he's never stopped Adonijah from doing anything in his entire life. In verse 6, we're told that David's, David is a failed father. He never interfered with Adonijah by asking him even a simple question, why do you behave as you do? Adonijah is the result of parental negligence and indulgence. A father who turns away from his sinfulness and lets him do whatever he wants. Even the reminder that he was very handsome and was born next after Absalom is meant to remind us about what kind of father David is. David did nothing to corral Absalom either and let his violence and evil run amok. Absalom, the, the beautiful prince who died hanging in a tree. And Adonijah is just like him, allowed to do whatever he wants. And so who is going to stop Adonijah here? I mean, the contrast between the frail king and the powerful prince is, is made clear. Adonijah is everything David is not. Able to mount a chariot and ride out with his people. Able to muster the military to his side. Able to control the religious institutions. Able to throw a big feast and banquet. David can do nothing. And so we see the fragile kingdom. Adonijah sacrifices the sheep, the cattle, the fattened calves. He invites all of the king's sons, all of his brothers, except, we're told, Solomon. Because Solomon is the one meant to be king. So will the promises of God remain true? Or will we find here the failed promises? Because the promise was given to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Back after David was made the king over the whole nation of Israel, when God rejected Saul, the first king, because of his unfaithfulness, God then makes this promise in 2 Samuel 7. You can, you can flip there with me. 2 Samuel is the book that comes right before 1 Kings. And 2 Samuel describes the rise of David's kingdom. 
And in 2 Samuel 7, in verse 11, partway through that verse, 2 Samuel 7, 11, this is what, this is what Nathan, the prophet, tells to David. This is the promise of God to David. The Lord declares that, you, th- that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for, for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, that's the promise. And yet, will this promise make it even into the next generation? David's kingdom has already been threatened twice. One of those we've already heard of of his own son, Absalom, trying to take the throne. Now, a a third time, the kingdom is threatened by another son, Adonijah, trying to take the throne. And so will this promise, if it's handed to to evil sons, the sons that aren't meant to be the one to to build God's temple, to build God's kingdom, will the promise hold true? And sadly, the books of First and Second Kings don't rise from this point. See, the, the, book, of, the book of First Samuel, the, the books of First and Second Samuel, we see a, a rise uh, to, to Saul, but then we see a greater rise in David's kingdom. And here in First and Second Kings, we will see the temple built by Solomon, but then things will radically fall off a cliff after Solomon. The kingdom will be ripped into pieces. And throughout the coming years, the, 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 the sons of David will be described, most of them. And all of the kings of the, the broken kingdom of Israel will be described as those who turned away from, from God and his promises. And the books of First and Second Kings will end with a great-great-grandson of David, led off as a captive. And so First Kings begins with the question that it will wrestle with through the whole storyline. And we'll only see a glimpse of it this spring and summer, looking at just the, the, the second of the kings of Israel. We first, or, uh, the second of the Davidic kings, first David, and we'll look at Solomon. But, but when Solomon's descendants, we will see the kingdom unravel. And so it becomes a question that Israel asks again and again, will God's promises fail? But this chapter also introduces us to other false promises. And so that's what what we've titled this series, False Promises, because the the life and ministry and reign of Solomon is one in which he has promised so much, a kingdom which will last forever. He is the one who builds God's temple, the one God will dwell right in, in his own royal city. And yet, Solomon is willing to chase after the, the false promises, the false promises of sex and power and money. And those are, those are the kinds of themes that are going to become clear in the, in the ministry of Solomon, but they're introduced to us here. When poor 
Abishag is brought, this beautiful girl, to, to serve the king, and she does so faithfully. And yet in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, Adonijah, after the death of, of David, will think, well, if I could get Abishag for myself, if I could conquer her, then I'd have everything I need. Then I will prove that I'm the son who should really be on my father's throne. I mean, sexuality is, is presented to us as, as a false promise. If I could just have this, then I'll have everything I need. Or power. Think of how Adonijah has, has declared himself to be king, and he shows in this public display a royal procession, men shouting an announcement, Hail, King Adonijah! And power will be a threat to Solomon and his kingdom, the temptation of power. Or of money, consider the wealth required to throw the party of verses 9 and 10, to sacrifice sheep and cattle, to show his own greatness. I mean, Solomon will amass a fortune in the coming chapters, unparalleled in human history. And yet it becomes a temptation that turns him from the true king. Money, power, sex. Now, thankfully, those aren't problems you and I have. Now, sadly, while we, while we go back 3,000 years, 1,000 years before the time of Christ, these are the same temptations that are right in front of us today. And yes, we, we, we can look and see how our, our, cultural, our culture spirals out of control where we have more disposable income than the, than the peasants of Israel would have had. And yes, so certainly these are great, great and perhaps even greater problems for us today. But in Solomon's own life, we will see that these are really only false promises. They're promising something that they cannot ultimately fulfill. Yes, is sex enjoyable and pleasurable? Yes, but will it give your life ultimate meaning and purpose? It cannot, for there may come a day when you lie in bed next to the beautiful woman and she doesn't offer what you need. And yet how many of us today are willing to bring the beautiful into our hearts and minds and lives? thinking that this is what will satisfy me. This picture that I see on the screen, this is what will give my life meaning. This book, this movie that entices me, this is where my joy and pleasure are found. It's a false and empty promise. For it will not ultimately satisfy. See, the greatest pleasures of life are always meant to point us to the greater pleasure of our relationship with God. And so sexuality within the confines of, of a marriage between one man and one woman and that one part is a big problem here in the life of Solomon. For he multiplies that through concubines and wives. That one, that, that sexual joy in one, that one flesh relationship is meant to, to, to give us joy and satisfaction, but not ultimately. It's meant to point us towards someone greater, something greater. We're tempted by the same kind of power. Yes, you and I might not have the influence to exalt ourselves and declare ourselves to be king and ruler. We might not be able to get 50 men to charge out in front of us, anointing us as the heir apparent. But we long for power. We grab for it where we can. 
even in the smallest ways of, of, of elbowing people aside to get what we want. And the pleasures of, of money. We can throw the big party. We can make ourselves happy, but it will not ultimately give us we want what we want. For many of us, use money to, to make ourselves happy. And yet that joy is always fleeting. There will, the, the next dollar will have to be spent. Some of us use money to, to, to gain some sense of control over our lives. And yet Adonijah has no control. Even David has no control. But, but when we come back to 1 Kings, we see here that there is one who has absolute control over this story. For he is the one who made the promise. It's God himself who is the one who is in control. He is the one who will place his king on the throne. And so Nathan, the prophet, back in verse 11, Nathan, the faithful prophet, Nathan, the prophet who risked his own life to confront David with his sin, Nathan has remained faithful to God's promise. He was not invited to the party because Adonijah knows what happens if you bring Nathan to something that God wouldn't agree with. He will stand up and say, you are not to be the king. God has anointed another. And so Nathan hears of what has happened. I mean, Adonijah wants everybody to know. And so Nathan goes to Bathsheba, who we're reminded is Solomon's mother. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord David's knowing it? See, God is still in control. He still has a spokesman, a prophet, who will defend the kingdom of God. See, we've seen the frailty of King David. There is nothing he can do to fix this problem. He has abdicated his responsibility in dealing with his sons for decades, and he is now too weak to start fixing things now. We already know enough to know that, that if Adonijah were to become king, he will fail because he will be just like his brother Absalom, chasing after his own pleasures. And we will quickly learn that Solomon, despite his wealth, despite the gift of wisdom given to him, will turn from God. And so 1 Kings throws it in our face, we need a greater king. These men will not do it. King David is frail, and we know his sin. Adonijah is not meant to be king, and Solomon, despite being given everything, will turn from God. We need a greater king. You and I need the everlasting, eternal kingdom of God. And so these, the promise is not false, that God will keep a son on David's throne forever. We hear that promise when we turn to the New Testament. It's the story that, that we looked at as we went through the, the gospel of Mark. The story of Jesus, the king, the one who is crucified with that title over, over his cross. But think of the way the, the apostle Paul begins his letter to the church in Rome. 
In Romans chapter 1, this is, this is how Paul begins this magnificent letter describing the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son. So listen, listen to Paul's description of Jesus who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You and I need a greater king and the apostle announces him, him to us, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yet... In the story of Jesus, we see the frailty of our king. Not a sinfulness like we see in David or Adonijah or Solomon. For he was kept by the power of the spirit of holiness from the temptations of sin. Jesus, the one who resists the temptations of sex and money and power. Jesus, the frail king whose body is beaten and broken, led to a cross, stripped of all his possessions, mocked by the crowds. Jesus, the king with nothing. And so it looks like the promises of God have failed. And yet in his frailty, in his willingness to die in our place, we see the power of God, for it is the power of the spirit of holiness who raises Jesus Christ from the dead declares him to be the Son of God, the everlasting King. And so 1 Kings asks us, will God's promises hold true? And the Scriptures declare to us, yes, the promises of God are true in Jesus Christ. He is the promised heir of David, the one who reigns on a throne, the one who reigns on an eternal throne throne, for he reigns in heaven, in a resurrected and perfected body, in an eternal kingdom. Will the promises of God hold true? Yes, they are true in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus, who is the Lord and King. First Kings confronts us with that question, who? Who will be king? And it confronts us with that personal question. Who will be your king? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your provision. For left to our own devices, we would turn from your plan, exalting ourselves, anointing ourselves, Lord, that is our own story. That's what we have done. We've turned from you. So, Lord, I thank you for exposing our sinfulness, for showing us our failures. Lord, let us see the emptiness of our sin. Let us turn from sin, from the false promises that our sinful actions lay out before us. Let us turn from those false promises and cling to the true promises that Jesus Christ is the one who we need. Lord, I pray for those who have listened today who wonder if this could be true, if Jesus really is a good and gracious king. Lord, let them, having heard your word, now submit themselves 
to your authority, to the righteous, the righteous reign of Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our King. Lord, we come to, to, to give ourselves to him, to acknowledge his power, his authority, and his dominion. And so, Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.